Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. Hello, and welcome to another series of Mormon Stories. This is Natasha Helfer-Parker, and today the topic is pornography. This is a subject currently affecting many Mormon stories, Mormon meetings, and pretty much our general Mormon culture at large. There are many that feel the church is overdoing the pornography messages and causing more problems by making it such a prominent topic. Um, then there's others who appreciate the frank discussion and, and accountability taking place um, within the church. So today I'm diverging from the usual Mormon stories format in that I am not interviewing a Mormon. I wanted to try and get a more objective perspective on the topic and was trying not to get the Mormon bias in the way, um, although I realize that there's always biases. And so I have asked a prominent psychologist and sex therapist, Dr. Stephanie Bueller, uh, to join me today. She's the director of the Bueller Institute with offices in Newport Beach and Riverside, California. And she's also the author of a book called Sex, Love, and Mental Illness, A Couple's Guide to Staying Connected, which just recently came out. Dr. Bueller treats people of all different races and cultures, religions, and is well familiar with the problematic behavior that can be associated with pornography. So hello, Dr. Bueller. Hello, Natasha. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have um, also invited John Dillon to join us to help me make sure we cover all the different angles on this topic that, that both of us want to discuss. So hello, John. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bueller. Uh, thank you. Yeah, this is very, very kind of you to, to spend your time with us. Um, so I thought the first place we'd start before we get into the topic is maybe a definition of the topic at large and kind of just maybe helping us look at how we define pornography because for me, for me, I like to kind of make a difference between pornography and erotica, but I just kind of wanted to get your sense of that, Dr. Bueller, so that we know kind of what you're talking about as you as you go forward. Right. Well, I think uh, the definition of pornography is um, the creation of sexual acts, whether in photos or in print or video, uh, designed to titillate people. So they have that purpose of getting people sexually aroused. Well, erotica does the same thing, but I think think erotica, I think most people would think of erotica as being something that piques your interest and maybe is not so frank or so in your face. It, it is more sensual and, um, and I think invites the viewer to think about their own sensuality, whereas pornography is really a more of an exchange between uh, maybe exhibitionists and voyeurs, um, you know, people that s simply like to watch other people in sex acts. So, uh, I, and I think um, uh, there was a Supreme Court judge, and the name escapes me, who said, pornography, I know it when I see it. And um, 
you know, I think people will have different definitions of what is erotic. Um, some people are going to want to, you know, stretch the boundaries a little bit more. But um, I think, you know, if you were to look at a, uh, maybe a painting of uh, a, a, a nude couple and they were in an embrace, you would call that erotic. Uh, whereas if you had uh, movies of the same couple just you know, having sex for the sake of having sex, uh, you might call that pornographic. Okay. I, I think that's great because I think that in our kind of more traditional culture, we do tend to, I think, define a lot of things as pornography that I wouldn't necessarily define as pornography. So I think it's important. What, what's your experience with that, John? Well, I, you know, Natasha, um, I've enjoyed when you brought this up before, and I think it's pretty valuable to have kind of a frank discussion about it. So I'm going to throw this out. Even though, Dr. Bueller, you're our guest, I'm going to throw this out to you and Natasha. Um, I, I think, t- tell me if this is why you're asking the question, Natasha. Um, it, it, I, I'm wondering if kind of we're, we're exploring this reality that, that sometimes people need or enjoy something to kind of get them going sexually, to kind of get them a little bit stimulated, maybe to get them in the mood. And so we're trying to say, we're trying to ask the question, is it okay for, for you know married couples or for single people or whoever to have some light form of sexual arousal that we'll call erotica that can help them achieve whatever their sexual goals are, if you will, but but then maybe allow for that, but then have a bit of a more clear drawing line between that and something that is socially taboo or forbidden, which is this, you know, label of pornography, which is probably a pretty broad um, category that can encompass some things that are really horrific and egregious and also some things that are maybe far uh, less... Um, you know, graphic um, on the scale. Is that kind of where you're going when you ask the question, Natasha? Just to... Yeah, I think that there's definitely the idea of using erotica as, as part of your sexual repertoire. But the other problem that I come across a lot is I'll get people coming in saying things like I'm addicted to pornography. And then when I really dig deeper or, you know, a wife is mad that her husband is looking at pornography. And when I dig deeper, it's like a Victoria's Secret catalog or it's you know, watching mm. Dancing with the Stars or, um, you know, things that, that, yeah, can be erotic and sensual and maybe even inappropriate for some people, but I would never call that pornography. So I think that's where I want to make sure that our audience understands what it exactly it is we're talking about. So, Dr. Bueller, let's just start there, if it's okay. I mean, tell us about sexual arousal and why people would need why people think they need and whether you think it's true that some people need some type of stimulus sometimes well that is a really interesting question i i i I really like that you said some people think they need this um i'm in the camp that if you understand your sexuality and have good communication with your partner that you probably don't need this, although you may want it to spice things up. And, um, you know, I, I think that's what people will say. They want to spice things up. You know, there's some boredom in the bedroom. And so um, they'll want to turn to erotic materials or pornography to um, increase sexual arousal. And, 
you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. And if one partner wants to do that and the other doesn't, that raises all kinds of uh, issues for the couple that they need to resolve. Well, so maybe maybe we can back up. I think that I think that within the Mormon context and probably just in the in the human experience as it relates to pornography, it, how this probably often starts is through somebody getting exposed to some pictures or some movies when they're in their, you know, young teen or adolescent years. And I think that, I think that the first time people get confronted with pornography is not in the context of having a partner at all, but it's just in this context of adolescence where I think there's probably a strong pull, um, a, a strong drive to engage in some type of self stimulation or masturbation kind of stuff and i don't know which feeds what if it's the hormones that feed the desire to look at porn or if it's the desire to look at porn or or if it's the exposure to porn that drives stimulation but let's start with the adolescent experience and then move into marital relations if that's okay because you know it i think many LES leaders would see this as an epidemic that our, our teens are looking at porn too much and masturbating too much. And I, and there's so much shame. There's so much charged language around that. Let's start there because that's where most people first confront pornography. Right. Well, you know, in the old days and, you know, I was around for the old days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so was I, you know, the exposure to pornography was pretty minimal. I think, you know, you had a, a girly magazine and it was probably very well worn, you know. Uh, uh, so these days, to me, when you talk about exposure to pornography, it's not just looking at a couple of pictures. It's usually, it's generally on the internet. And, uh, you know, there's so much material that there's just an endless supply. And I, I think that's part of the problem is this endless supply. I think, you know, with adolescence, I think, you know, there's a natural curiosity about the human body and about sex. And, you know, for me and being a non-Mormon, for me, you know, a, a, a teen having that interest might be considered quite healthy and the desire to, you know, see the human body in all its glory um, doesn't uh, doesn't raise many concerns. Um, it's when the adolescent crosses a line where you know the social skills are declining, and uh, they're just they're you know involved in this kind of sordid world, uh, and that's that is that has become the central world, and that's very problematic. And can you speak really quickly to to the separation of masturbation and pornography use? Like, I mean, I my understanding is that there's many adolescents and adults who masturbate without pornography being part of it. Right. Um, very, yeah, that is very true. Um, you know, you can use your own fantasy material, um, or you know, sometimes people just get into the sensual experience of it and uh, the exploration of the body. So. You know, you don't need pornography to get aroused. Um, there are other, other, certainly other ways. So, human, human beings are very creative. So, so Dr. Bueller, let's just hit that head on. It may be obvious to you, but, you know, when I was growing up, I, I was taught that masturbation is, is really bad, that 
Um, there, there's kind of a, there was a famous talk called Little Factories given by a, a church leader in, in the LDS church, I think back in the late 70s or early 80s, that basically had the philosophy that, you know, you're, especially if you're a male, but maybe if you're a female too, that your body is like a factory where it produces, you know, um, I don't know, semen or whatever he he was talking about, hormones. And what you don't want to do as a teenager is get the factory revved up because once you get the factory revved up, then you're always looking for opportunities to masturbate, which can lead to sexual behavior and maybe even can lead to perversions. Um, and, And that was, I think, the mindset at the time. And so, Masturbation. Yeah, so was... let's just clarify that girls were not mentioned in that at all. Right, right, <laughs> right. <yeah>. And so, <clears throat> and so, Mormons like you know Catholics and many others were taught don't masturbate; it's bad. There's a big shame thing, um, and so people learn to hide it. So unpack the health or unhealth of masturbation as a way to start. Is it something we should fear? Is it something that leads to horrible things? Does it lead to promiscuity? Uh, does it lead to insanity? Like. Does it lead to homosexuality? Uh, I, I would say none of those. Um, I think understanding your own body and you know finding out that your body can give you pleasure is fine. I, I you know, and there are some health benefits actually to masturbation. Uh, you know, for men it helps with prostate health, and for women it helps with balancing hormones. And of course, you know, it oxygenates the body and uh, and the brain, and uh, you know, if you have a healthy attitude about it, it can make you feel uh, relaxed and you know, vital, really. So there are some uh, positives to it. I think that uh, when you bring shame to it, to me, that that actually, uh, in my mind, can cause that can cause things to perpetuate. So it's like you masturbate, and then you're filled with shame and then because you have negative feelings you and you become anxious you might masturbate again to relieve those negative feelings you know it uh, uh, self-pleasuring can do a good job of that you know relieving negative feelings so then you get into some you risk getting into some problematic behaviors um uh you know, it, can it become a compulsive behavior when that's maybe repeated too often? Um, you know, in, in my field, in the field of sex therapy, uh, I guess we would say if it interferes with your, <clears throat> if it interferes with your day-to-day functioning, if it interferes with your relationships or uh, interferes with your ability to get to your job or something that you are actually doing on the job uh, or you're not pursuing your friendships, you know, and you're doing this behavior instead, then then you have a problem. But, uh, you know, if it's not interfering with anything, mm, well, uh, maybe not so much of a problem. What about the idea that it leads to um, promiscuity? That, you know, if, 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 the, if the church teaches that having sex outside of marriage is terrible and that masturbation gets people too sexualized, too young, that then leads them to experiment, um, uh, you know, uh, w- with other people. I, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't think masturbation does that. I mean, I think if masturbation led to promiscuity, I think everybody would be promiscuous. Um. So what? <laughs> 
Well, and it's I, I've heard it called the safest sex around anyway. So it's right. yes, <laughs> no STDs involved, and right, no STDs involved, and right. That's a really good point. You know, no that, unwanted pregnancy, and right that you know there was a famously Jocelyn Elder, uh, who was the Surgeon General under uh, President Clinton, who actually recommended that young people be taught to masturbate or that, you know, that was okay so that it would prevent STDs and I think at that time the spread of AIDS. And, you know, I thought, well, wow, that's really progressive. And then the next thing was, you know, she got the hook. I mean, she was like, (laughs) she was fired from her job or asked to resign. Um, I, 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 I tend to think that you know, masturbation can prevent people from making bad decisions. You know, if you know that you can um, bring yourself pleasure and comfort yourself in this way, you might choose not to seek out, um, you know, sexual relationships outside of marriage or uh, relationships that really aren't very healthy for you in all different ways. So, so, so masturbation can keep you from moral transgressions. Yes, saying. that's what I. Yes, that's what I think. Because oh. it, what about this model that the male and maybe the female too? Uh, you guys are going to have to help me out with the female thing. But you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like there's this buildup that happens, and mm-hmm. you need a release. Is there any psychological or physiological data that just like people have kind of a sexual clock that, that needs kind of a, a, I don't want to say discharge. That's a terrible word, but that needs a release. That's a great um, word, John. What are you talking about? Okay. All right. All right. You guys are helping me unravel from my shame spiral. But, um, but is there, is there evidence for that, that just humans need yeah. a, a regular release sexually? Yeah. I mean, uh, women, uh, for example, you asked about women. So women at the midpoint of their menstrual cycle, when they're ovulating, uh, experience surges in hormone levels. And, um, you know, they feel, you know, randy or horny. And, uh, you know, if there's no partner available, then they might have the need to have a sexual release. And men don't have the same kind of, um, you know, definitive clock. But, uh, they have buildup of semen, and they uh, uh, also have buildup of uh, hormones, and they also feel a need for release. So we do seem to have a physiological need, and you know when that need gets um, suppressed or repressed, that can cause some psychological problems where people become quite disconnected from their sexuality and from sensation in their body. And that, that's not a good thing. Why not? Why not? Just why not until you're married, just pack that stuff down tight so that it, <laughs> no, seriously, why are you laughing at me, Natasha? I, I don't know. It's just funny. Well, I mean, that's, that's what, we, that's what I felt like I was taught. Pack it down right. until right. you're married. Well, you know, that thing that I, 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 really do understand that message. And um, however, uh, if you were to sit in my office for several sessions, you would see that I have a lot of not so much men, although sometimes men, but women who are so very suppressed 
Um, they've never had the experience of, of uh, self-pleasuring. And, um, you know, they've worked so hard to uh, get rid of any of those feelings and, you know, not recognize them that once they get into a marriage, they cannot flip the switch and cannot enjoy sex. And so that can be, you know, very damaging, I think. Um, well, we have so many women who have never been able to achieve orgasm, um, mm-hmm. not only in the Mormon church, but, you know, in general, I think there's there's that issue, which mm-hmm. you know, is, is sad. So you're making the argument that masturbation could be healthy for for healthy marriages and healthy sexual relations in marriage. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I think so. I think, you know, a woman understanding her own body can then communicate to her partner uh, what is pleasing to her and that can make sex more enjoyable for the couple. Um, it, it's, it seems to be difficult for women, especially when they are uh, uh, shy or repressed uh, about their sexuality, uh, very hard for them to kind of connect all the dots, if you will, when they're with a partner. You know, so they're trying to negotiate being with a partner who comes to uh, comes to the marital bed with his own ideas and his own needs, and um, you know she's trying to accommodate to those, and then to try in the moment to identify what she wants. It's difficult, you know. So um, if a woman is willing to do some self exploration, that usually does help the couple uh, with. you know, their sexual pleasure and sexual enjoyment. Well, and going back to some of the cultural ramifications, um, I think one of the things that you'd agree with me, John, that happens a lot in our culture is is people get married very quickly. So it's very common to have a, you know, anywhere from a two-week to a three-month engagement, um, you know, amongst a dating couple. (laughs) I've seen it. (laughs) I've seen it. Yeah, my parents did that. And and a lot of that, I think, has to do with, you know, not being able to explore each other sexually. And um, so kind of going back to the idea that masturbation can, you know, help us through a time that's difficult to not be um, active sexually, you know, so that maybe those engagements can last a little bit longer and people can get to know each other, you know, a little bit better before they make those types of... Right. If if I put my orthodox believing mormon hat back on the only problem i have with anything that's being saying said so far is you know the flip side the extreme side on the other end is just rampant masturbation rampant promiscuity nothing matters just just let it all hang out it's the 70s and the 60s again like is there any limit to the the health of masturbation and to self-exploration you know are there any dangers involved? Are there any downsides at all? Or is this just, let's all enjoy self-love? I mean, is there is there a, a dark side on the other side that you see, Dr. Bueller? Uh, well, yes, definitely. There, you know, as I said, it can't become a problematic behavior. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of men, you know, developing like carpal tunnel syndrome and, <laughs> you know, actually causing damage to their genitals. Uh, you know, so it definitely, you can do it too much, for sure, you can, you know, so, but I don't know that saying 
uh, you know, if you were to say, well, masturbation is healthy uh, activity to engage in sometimes, um, I don't know that that in particular is what leads to excess. I think what leads to excess is um, not is is using masturbation as a coping mechanism for negative feelings and not recognizing that and being caught up in a cycle and uh, of excess that you know and whether it's um, coping with negative feelings about the relationship that you're in or coping with negative feelings about yourself uh, you know or unresolved could be even unresolved family of origin issues um, uh, problems at work uh, low self-esteem uh, feelings of inadequacy uh, you know all of those are 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 problems that can underlie uh, excessive masturbation um, and use of pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it just, I'm studying, I'm getting my PhD in psychology right now in clinical counseling psychology, and it just sounds so familiar. It's like humans experience anxiety and emotions and sadness and cognitions, and sometimes they don't know what to do with those because they're unpleasant. And sometimes they take drugs. Sometimes they restrict in terms of diet. Sometimes they cut. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they, it sounds like, sometimes they compulsively masturbate. And it's all an attempt to regulate emotion, feeling, cognition, and um, distress. Is that, does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds fair. It's that, you know, I think of it as a, a maladaptive coping mechanism. You know, you don't, you haven't developed other ways of coping with those negative feelings that are healthier and less self-destructive. This is super valuable. You guys are doing great. I'm just loving this. <laughs> so can we move on to pornography? Let's do it. Do sorry, sorry, Natasha. Okay. I just thought that was important because I think no, I people don't and, unpack those two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and pretty much, in, and again, in our Mormon culture, anytime I've heard a talk on pornography there's usually the mention of masturbation as well so i do think we tie those in together and and i think they are two separate things they can be tied together but they're generally two separate things um so one of the discussions that i see going on a lot amongst um mormon bloggers or you know whatever you want to say on the internet is this idea of pornography is it really that bad or are there good things like a lot of you know i think people who are starting to use pornography are wanting maybe either justification or this idea that, well, you know, as long as I'm balanced and healthy, so what if I look at pornography? Is it really that bad? So I just wondered if you could share any of the evidence that you know of that on either side of that equation, you know, are there negative impacts to our psychology and to our arousal templates from looking at pornography? And are there positive ones? And now I'm talking about pornography, not erotica. Right. Well, you know, when you talk about positives, one thing that um, might kind of shock people or be amazing to people is that it seems that uh, people that look at pornography are actually less likely to act out uh, sexually. So, you know, there are sometimes there are fears that, uh, you know, Looking at pornography will lead to uh, to rape or sexual assault or um, uh, you know pedophilia, 
Um, but it, the opposite seems to be true. There's data? Yeah, there's actual data. There's a researcher named Diamond, and um, he was expecting to find uh, what we all stereotypically believe, which is that you know, porno- looking at pornography leads to um, leads to violent or illegal acts, illicit acts. Uh, but he found that the opposite was true, which is quite interesting. Um, and I think you know, in more progressive or more liberal cultures, like in the Netherlands, uh, pornography is looked at as a, a healthy substitute when you don't have a partner. I, you know, if you're unable to find one. And you know, there are people that have various um, disabilities, uh, whether mental or physical, that make it very difficult to have partnered sex. So it, it can be an outlet for those people. Um, and, and actually, in the Netherlands, they would think of it as, as being compassionate <laughs> that there is such an outlet, you know. So uh, we don't like to think about those things here or talk about them, you know, like what, what do we do about the sexual needs of people that are marginalized or disadvantaged in some ways. But, you know, so pornography can serve a purpose for them. Um, are, are you also going to say that, that rape and pedophilia are have lower incidence rates in the Netherlands? Uh, you know what, that I do not know. I, okay. yeah. I believe that when I read this study, it was about kind of criminal acts are less, sexual criminal acts are less in cultures or societies where there's um, access and acceptance of pornography. So I don't know if that means, you know, that's, an advantage for the general public so much as it is maybe for those who would have those tendencies to begin with, those kind of violent criminal tendencies to begin with. And then this is an outlet so that they don't have to actually act on those. Right. Right. You know, however, um, you know, we don't know what materials they're looking at and we don't know if there was harm done in the production of those materials. So that raises other issues. Um, I think that, you know, some of the, the, the con, well, uh, you know, there are, I'll talk a little bit more about prose, you know, there are people that will make the argument that, um, uh, you know, people that watch pornography are more sexually savvy, they understand the human body and the sexual response better, so that they have better partnered sex. Um, and... Uh, you know, that there's, you know, a lot of people feel that it's a, it, it can be sort of a celebration of a, a part of human experience. And just so, to clarify, these are kind of theories. These are not scientifically studied theories. Yes. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Um, the, the cons are, you know, they're kind of, they're all over the map <laughs> in terms of research um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, quibbling about uh, the research that's been done. Um, I will put, it, I'll put out there, though, something kind of entertaining, uh, which is somebody tried to do a study of men that had never looked at pornography and said he couldn't do the study. He, had, he, he couldn't find any men that had never looked. <laughs> That, that. <laughs> oh. Oh. So our sample is, is tainted. <laughs> yes, a true story. So anyway, um, 
So everybody's doing it, basically. Basically. I mean, I don't think that's true. You know, I, I, I think that idea of everybody's doing it is untrue. That's sort of like college drinking where, um, you know, what the research shows in that is that uh, uh, people who drink to excess in their college years believe that everybody is doing it. But that is, that's just simply not true. It's a small percentage that are involved in all that college drinking. And I think the same is true with pornography. I mean, my experience as a sex therapist and having worked with hundreds and hundreds of couples is that there are plenty of people that really aren't interested, don't need it, don't see why you would look at it. Uh, you know, so it's, I, I, I don't think everybody is doing it. Well, then the difference between what does it mean to be doing it, which to me connotes like a more regular practice versus, well, I was exposed to it once or twice, you know, or I looked at it once or twice throughout my whole lifetime. So, right. This is, this is something that I think is crucial in this whole discussion. For me, this is maybe one of the most important questions. First of all, is all pornography alike in terms of whether it's, helpful or damaging to somebody is there light let's just say light pornography that could be helpful but but hardcore graphic pornography that could be damaging right and then is all usage the same it's not if somebody does it once a week so that they can have a release because they he and he and his wife or she and her husband aren't intimate is that different than what we see here at utah state which is four or five six hours a day compulsive like are there shades to good and bad pornography and are there shades to good and bad healthy or unhealthy use of pornography yeah definitely definitely i mean i think you know i I, i've worked with um men who have come in who have looked at pornography that ended up being disturbing to them it was arousing but also disturbing And, uh, you know, they're they're in my office trying to figure that out. I think that because there is access to so many different kinds of pornography, uh, not just the light stuff, you know, uh, uh, you know, nudie photos or, you know, people involved in, um, you know, kind of vanilla kinds of activities. um, You know, there are things that are quite, I think, shocking or um, distasteful to the majority of people and, uh, you know, can be upsetting to somebody that stumbles upon it. Um, And even more upsetting if they're finding themselves aroused to it at the time and then later, you know, that whole shame thing of how could that have aroused me when that's so awful. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that becomes very disturbing. And, of course... Um, there is some evidence that uh, men that are involved in downloading uh, or looking at child pornography, if there wasn't access on the internet and such easy access, they they might never look at it. You know, so there definitely is a dark side to internet pornography. A- another problem that comes up too is um, men have who look at pornography uh, can end up with uh, quite a bit of sexual dysfunction when they try to have partnered sex. Um, You know, they run into having problems with either erectile dysfunction or 
what is called delayed ejaculation, um, you know, where uh, it takes forever for the man to ejaculate or he doesn't at all when he's with his partner. Um, you know, he's so used to a high level of arousal that uh, looking at pornography brings that, um, you know, partner sex just isn't, doesn't have the same um, charge. And that's very problematic. So um, that's, that's kind of a dark side to uh, compulsively masturbating through pornography. So you're saying that for some people, pornography does gives more satisfaction or stimulation than partnered sex. Yeah. yeah. Is that across the board or just depending? Um, you know, that I don't know whether it's across the board, but typically what happens is uh, my understanding is that uh, pornographers um, know how to lead somebody to what gives them the greatest charge. So it's like, well, if you like looking at this, how about this? You like this? Well, you like this. If you like this, you must really like this. You know, so you're you're able to find whatever it is. You know, um, uh, so that becomes kind of problematic. I mean, if your partner isn't that, <laughs> if you like this, and your partner is that, it, you know, it, it leads to problems in the bedroom. So. Mm-hmm. So before, so before we jump into partner stuff, um, you know, let, let's just apply the same logic we apply to, porno, to to masturbation, which is a little bit's okay. Do it in, you know, do it in a healthy, moderate way, and you'll be okay. So why why not? Are you saying the same thing about decent pornography? Let's say that there's graphic, violent, heinous stuff that that we're just going to totally take off the table and say. You know, let's say that there's abuse stuff or snuffing or whatever the horrible uh-huh. dark side of pornography is. Let's take that off the table for a minute. Let's say that there's, let's say that within the realm of progressiveness, there's some type of porn that's lower core or tasteful. I don't know. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's some that you know might be considered tasteful. Okay, so let's say there's tasteful porn that's non heinous. Um, are you saying, hey, yeah, you know, it's okay if a man wants to do this or a woman wants to do this every once in a while or once a week, as long as it doesn't interfere with their job or their marriage or whatever. Like, do you apply that same logic that we applied to masturbation or pornography then? I, I, I would. I mean, I think, but you know what? I, I'll tell you what, John. I, I have come to think, believe that each person has to decide for him or herself whether or not this is something that they are comfortable with and whether or not this is something that they want in their lives. Um, what, that, what that comes off to a religious, religious believer is just this moral relativism, like mm-hmm. anyone can do anything they want. What I would So let's say that I'm putting my, my orthodox believer hat back on for a second. Mm-hmm. What I would want a psychologist to tell me is not do whatever works for you. I would want you to say what's healthiest. If you were to give me a guideline for what I should do because it's healthy for the most amount of people most of the time, is pornography something that I should look at like omega-3s? You should have it on some type of regular <laughs> no, no. basis. You know, in my, in my practice, I, I, I never recommend looking at pornography. I, I actually don't because I don't think that's up to me to make that decision. And I, I understand what you're saying about moral relativism, but 
to me, it, it really is um, a matter of examining your values. And so if somebody asks me uh, about pornography and I say, well, what do you believe? What do you, what, you know, what does your church tell you? What do you believe? What do you think is healthy? What's a healthy amount for you? Um, you know, those are all issues that could be explored. And, uh, you know, if it's something that leaves someone filled with guilt or shame after they do it, then I, I don't think that's a, a healthy activity for them personally. But here's the well, rub. And I, I, sorry, Natasha, I deal with no, this okay. as a psychologist, uh, you know, in therapy all the time. Sometimes values can be toxic. We just got through saying that religion prohibits masturbation and stigmatizes masturbation and porn. Mm-hmm. Which which we fear might increase chronic unhealthy masturbation and porn use because of that stigma. Yet in the therapy session, you're going to turn people back to the wolf, so to speak, to say what are your values? Because so many people's values they associate and equate with their religious beliefs. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a theologist. And I, um, you know, it's, I guess I would say that uh, I would look at those things, masturbation and pornography within both contexts. And, you know, I might have somebody in my office who uh, comes to the conclusion that masturbation is okay as long as I don't use pornography and I use fantasy material or I just use uh, you know, the sensations of my own body and enjoy that, that's okay. But, uh, you know, pornography is not going to be part of that. that that's a, that, you know, that's an okay scenario. Or I'm going to look at material that I consider to be erotic rather than pornographic. So I am going to watch movies that I know have uh, sensual, sexy scenes in them but I'm not going to, uh, you know, put on the adult channel and, and look at frank pornography. So, you know, I think people, you know, I mean, in, the, in a therapy room, uh, it's different than the, uh, you know, elder's office or the pastor's office, the minister's office. It's a different place. And... Um, you know, that free exploration, uh, that, that is, it's, it's, it's up to my client to determine for themselves. I'm simply a guide. Is it even well, fair? Is is it where, e- oh, go ahead, Natasha. Well, it's just where there's probably some difference here. If you're going to go to, for instance, like a Christian counselor or an LDS therapist, um, where there may be some you know, inherent bias for the therapist to lay out some ground rules that go along with the, with the values of the religion versus, you know, a therapist that's going to kind of like Dr. Bueller is going to be more experiential and just kind of, what are you bringing to the table? Right. Right. I mean, here's the thing, you know, I mean, I I know uh, this is Mormon stories, but in my practice, I, I, I see people from Mormon religion, but I also see people from Jewish religion. I see uh, Muslims, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, 
Christians, uh, you know, liberal Christians, atheists, agnostics. I mean, you know, I get the whole, uh, the whole spectrum, if you will. And people have definitely have different ideas and different values about pornography. And I really feel that, uh, you know, people have to be square with their ideas about it and what they believe. Um, you know, and if that includes, uh, not that I've, uh, uh, I've only done this uh, maybe a couple of times, but sometimes that does include going back to the church and having a discussion with someone from the church about uh, certain either sexual behaviors or, um, or issues. Well, and going back to your, your original question, John, about, you know, this, you know, vicious good pornography. And that's probably where I stumble the most is that I, I've actually searched for it. (laughs) So here I'm personally admitting of things just, you know, kind of to see what's out there. And I, all the pornography, even when you hit things like erotica or soft pornography or things, the storyline, in my experience, never includes really much about the relationship. It really is just the sex. (laughs) Whereas if you go to like a rated R movie, you'll have, you know, you might have the sexy scene, you know, you might have the pretty sensual scene, but there's usually a story or a relational aspect to that story that you're also tied with. Um, So, so Natasha, what I hear you calling for is Christian values porn. (laughs) where a nice Christian couple goes to church and then comes home. They put the kids in front of a nice, you know, VeggieTales movie. And then they go into the bedroom and they talk about their relationship. And then they engage in wholesome sex that a couple can watch and enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's right. There's a whole market out there, I'm sure. Right. (laughs) For all we know, maybe it's been produced and we just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't been able to come across it too much. But, you know, so that's, I guess that's where my concerns are. Or as a therapist, when I think of health, you know, I, I do think that obviously there's the relationship with self. But then there's, again, moving more towards the marital dimension. There is this relationship with this other person. And how does, you know more regular pornography, what we'd consider regular pornography, how does that affect, you know, that relationship? And if it's getting in the way of that relationship somehow, uh, it really can be problematic. So, so Dr. Beeler, I have a thousand questions in this area. So, so first off, <laughs> why would, why I brought John on. <laughs> why would, why would anybody, why would anybody want to do porn in a health, why would there ever be a scenario for healthy porn in a marriage where you've got a partner sleeping next to you? Well, I think some people would say variety is the spice of life. And, um, you know, if you're, I, I would think that some couples feel that if they're in a monogamous relationship and, and, and that's the vow that, uh, you know, if they're not going to have sexual experiences, uh, live sexual experiences with other people, then this is a way to maintain uh, their monogamous relationship is by watching other people enjoying themselves. So that's, that's one scenario. 
Um, another would be to sometimes to get ideas about, uh, you know, sexual practices. Um, a third is, I think you said earlier, you know, to increase sexual arousal and sexual interest. And a fourth is just, it's entertainment. I mean, some people consider it to be a form of entertainment. It's just fun for them. So those are some reasons. Um, well, and you're talking about the couples that want to look at it together. Right, that agree, that agree that they want to look at it together. Is yeah. there any data, and I actually know the answer to this because I was at um, the uh, Association for Be um, for uh, Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies last year, and there are studies being done showing that mutual porn watching can actually be healthy for the marriage. Is that your understanding of the data? Um, you know, I, it is. Uh, they're just, to me, it, it has to be a consensual act. I mean, you know, it, it, it really, it doesn't work when one wants to and the other doesn't. Um, but I think if they both enjoy it together, it would be, I guess, it's similar to enjoying a meal together or enjoying, um, you know, skiing together, whatever activity, and probably creates a bond and, uh, you know, could be healthy. And the problem, I guess, I see there also is that when you, you know, ask people if it's consensual, many times it is consensual in the sense of, uh, I said yes, I would do it, but is it really what they want to be doing. In other words, many times, um, yeah. stereotypically, women will yeah. kind of say, sure, I'll go along with it because I know this is what my husband's into and I don't want to be left out, but they're not truly, they're not acting on their own true behalf. Right. Yeah. Because they've got to agree to the style, to graphic, you know, and is this against my moral values at all? Like there's right. that whole deal, Right. Right. I mean, that, you know, honestly, that, that's not a problem that comes into my office. You know, couples that enjoy uh, sex together and they're enjoying looking at pornography together, they don't show up in my office. So it's hard for me to, sometimes it's hard for me to comment on, um, on certain sexual scenarios. I don't have experience working with them. You know, I can tell you that there are couples that have come in and say, yeah, we look at it once in a while and it's fun. And, um, you know, but we don't want to look at it all the time. Um, so, you know, they're not harming each other. They're not harming one another. They're not harming anybody else. Um, you know, and so it's kind of like uh, not really an issue. And then the dark side of that would be if, if the if the husband is or the or the wife is into something that just is not tasteful or uh, appealing to the other, and there's this pressure or shame involved in making someone do something they're uncomfortable with, that's yeah, the, the yeah, dark that's side. yeah, that's a dark side. That's and Natasha, you were talking about it, that, yeah, yeah, and it's not usually even making; it's more just like you kind of go along with something just. You know, like the the spouse would never think that they're forcing their spouse to do this, but you know that the the one person's like inside. You know, they're just not being completely honest about how they feel about it, um, because they don't want to. You know, there's already issues there. They're worried. They're wanting to improve right. the relationship, and so they just don't say, "Well, you know, this doesn't really do it for me." 
And so then they put themselves in a position where they're doing something with their partner that they resent or, you know, and then that brings up all kinds of other issues within the marriage. Well, what about this? What about this fear that always needing to raise the bar sexually is going to lead to more and more extreme, you know, the snuffing or the, you know, pedophilia or, you know, anal sex or whatever st- stuff that maybe some people would see as extremes that are unhealthy. Um, you know, and you kind of always have to be raising the bar. So it takes more and more to get you excited. Could pornography lead a couple down that road of making it so they can't just have regular, pleasant missionary style standard sex. And instead you know, it takes more and more to medicate, so to speak, to, to, to please kind of like a drug addiction that, or alcohol addiction that, that gets too far. Yeah. And this falls into the whole addiction model, which is what I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. I guess let's talk about that right now. You know, is, mm-hmm. is, can you be addicted to pornography? And Right. You know, that, uh, Natasha and I are on a listserv for an organization of sex therapists and educators. And this issue of whether or not you can be actually addicted is one that is argued about over and over. Every time the word sex addiction comes up, there are people on both sides of the argument that feel very passionately about whether or not it is or is not an addiction. Um, you know, one of the problems with calling it is an addiction is kind of the same as uh, uh, calling food an addiction. You know, we need to eat, we have a drive to eat, and we need to, or we have a sex drive. And, uh, you know, whereas with alcohol or uh, drugs like heroin, we don't have a drive to use those. I mean, there's no, you know, there's there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing intrinsic that, causes us to seek out alcohol, you know, it's something that's social. Um, so, you know, can, can you call it an addiction from that standpoint? I'm not, I'm not really sure. You know, there are definitely um, problems with the addiction model in that um, people start to feel a great deal of shame about even normal sexual urges and become very confused by them. So, you know, the, the idea of calling it an addiction, I think is problematic. Um, there are some similarities to an addiction. It does seem that for some uh, viewers of pornography that they do need more intense material to get the same charge. So there's kind of a, um, a, a tolerance, if you will. And there is compulsion, you know, uh, urges that come and need to be satisfied or, you know, the person feels that they need to be satisfied or, you know, they're, you know, they have no idea what terrible thing is going to happen to them if they don't satisfy that urge. Um, feeling of lack of control. Right. Yes. And right, right, right. So, um, so it has some of the, some of the characteristics of an addiction, but I don't know that we can, call it a pure addiction. Gotcha. Yeah. And you, um, 
I know that you recommend The Porn Trap by Wendy Motts, and she uses the addiction model. What What do you have to say about that right. and why you find it useful? I think, you know, that book of all the, the books that I have read for the public on, um, on, on pornography, I like it because she really talks about um, family of origin issues, uh, not being, um, not making appropriate relationships, having poor social skills, not making a good attachment to one's partner, um, you know, bringing in a lot of issues that may or may not have to do with addiction. Uh, so, um, are there personality traits that you notice when you work with men or women that, that tend to be compulsive with their? pornography use? Um, I would say, you know, I, I really haven't had women in my office uh, with problematic behavior like this. So I'll use the word men. Um, but often they are quite uh, detached from, emotionally detached from their partner. Um, they may say, well, I love my partner, but really their behaviors show that they haven't really made a good attachment. Um, you know, they don't, uh, they don't feel truly bonded to their partner and uh, the pornography is just another wedge. Um, it, it, pornography can become, if you're talking about dark side, an emotional dark side, is that uh, pornography can become... Um, like an emotional wedge between a couple, a way for a man to regulate how much emotional intimacy there is in the relationship. And that to me is maybe one of the saddest things about using uh, too much pornography. So you're saying that... Go ahead, ahead, John. No, 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 go ahead. (laughs) Well, I I do find a lot of times that um, I'll have, you know, couples where... You know, the one, the man, again, keeping with the stereotypical roles, um, will say, well, you know, I only use it once a week or once every month. It's not a big deal. I don't know why she's making such a big deal about it. And she's, you know, devastated and feeling like she does not want this to be a part of her marital life. And, um, you know, the classic thing that he'll say is, well, it's not affecting anything. So, and, you know, I want to, I don't want her telling me what to do. So. What, yeah, what do you have to say about that? Well, to me, that just speaks to the emotional detachment that the man has. I mean, you know, he has a partner who is um, disturbed by his behavior, and he says, what's the big deal in that? So what if my behavior disturbs you? I don't care. And, I mean, that is, you know, the not caring, to me, is one of the most uh, destructive parts of all of that. Um, You know, the not caring is part of what perhaps, perhaps allowed the man to get into the pornography use and use it exclusively and, and, you know, cut his partner out of the picture. You know, to me, there's can be a real separation of love and sex and that's a problem if you're in a partnered relationship so you know 
that's what I, I think I'm speaking to in terms of, um, uh, you know, an emotional, an emotional wedge or a way of eliminating emotional intimacy. Um, sometimes men who overuse pornography are dissatisfied with the aspects of the relationship, but um, are poor communicators or uh, avoid conflict at all costs. So that's another characteristic that I've seen. And, um, you know, that also uh, creates an emotional wedge in a partnership. So, so these, I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. So, you know, the pornography itself is just really a symptom of other uh, emotional deficits, other, uh, you know, problems that the person has with handling intimacy, handling conflict, being able to communicate with one's partner. So I, I completely agree with you, but playing devil's advocate, you know, there's this whole idea of, well, I don't want my partner micromanaging me. So for instance, if I have a couple and the woman is saying, you know, he's not letting me have contact with my friends or he's not letting me have contact with my family, he's micromanaging. And she's, she's basically saying, I don't want to have that type of relationship where he's in control of all my behavior. What's different then from a man saying, well, I don't want her micromanaging my pornography addiction. She just needs to learn how to you know, be more self-assured or not have a problem with this. Right. Well, you know, going out and seeing one's friends or hanging out with one's family are, you know, those are healthy activities that don't, uh, don't necessarily affect the relationship or the woman's level of intimacy with her partner. Um, you know, looking at pornography seems to do that you know it's it's taking away from a partnered activity so it involves the relationship going to see one's friends is not taking away from a partnered activity and so i think that's what the difference is so are are you saying a risk of porn is that the porn using spouse turns to the porn instead of a healthy sexual relationship and it saps what what can be strong and healthy uh, a bonding thing for the couple yeah the 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 porn using spouse just turns to that and it um it leaves that chasm in the relationship is that what you're saying yes yeah definitely and it, yeah. that's a risk of porn use in marriage then you're saying is that it can lead to a decrease in mutual sexual intimacy yes so do, would that make you caution against it then in in marriage well to excess yes um, you know, there, there, I guess there are different levels and different degrees, you know, I, I, I think even in my practice, um, uh, I've had couples that come in and the female partner doesn't want the man to look at pornography under any circumstances for any reason. And, um, you know, that to me personally seems to be an extreme, but if that's her feeling, that's her feeling. And the, you know, I think the uh, male partner needs to respect that. On the other hand, if he's looking at it once in a while and, um, you know, she just finds it distasteful. Well, that's a, just a difference of opinion. So that's another degree. 
And then there's a, a third degree where, you know, the, there are disturbances in the couple's bedroom, you know, and other parts of the relationship. To me, excessive use of pornography is a symptom that there's something wrong in the relationship or something uh, not, uh, uh, not functioning properly within the individual. So. Well, what would you say too? I, I, I sense that a lot of women who usually find out that their husband is watching pornography, not because the husband comes and tells them, but because they're found out some way. Um, I, I get a lot of this, um, very intense emotions um, of really feeling betrayed and really mm-hmm. almost the same type of emotions that I see when there's been an extramarital affair, you know, so really seeing mm-hmm. this and feeling like it's an infidelity. Can you speak to that? Well, I think these days there are all different forms of infidelity. It depends on, you know, who you're talking to. I mean, some people feel that, uh, you know, texting or sexting, is a form of infidelity and others um, aren't so threatened by that and just find it silly or whatever, a flirtation. Um, You know, I think that uh, to me, I think couples need to have a sit down, sit down on the sofa, talk about it and, you know, lay it out. You know, this is what, this is my definition of infidelity. And, you know, if you're getting sexual gratification outside any sexual gratification outside of the marriage bed, then I consider that to be a form of infidelity. And, you know, it has to be spoken up front and it has to be discussed. But they're gonna be they're gonna be spouses that feel that way about masturbation. That's true. That's true. You know, but I mean so there's extremes like uh, so right that would be an extreme no but no but I, that's a very common not one in within, the Mormon church within Mormonism <laughs> you're not to masturbate it's a perverted dirty shameful thing for probably a majority of believing active Mormons and so um, there are plenty of spouses wives let's just stereotype and say wives if they were to find their husband masturbating they would want to take them to the bishop they would want them to confess they would want to put them on a repentance plan and they would want to monitor their shower behaviors and any alone time to make sure that that's not happening because that is a gross egregious violation of their marital vows and of their what they what they expect in terms of exclusive intimacy I love your provocative language, John. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. I, I like to. I like to bring. Well, it's the language that's used, though. So yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that that's right. when we're talking within the Mormon culture. There, there is very little wiggle room as far as what would be considered, you know, okay to do on one's own. Right, and I can't really speak to, you know, again. I know we're, I'm on a program called Mormon Stories. Um, it, it's difficult for me to speak to. I don't know if there, you know, if I think about like, uh, you know, Jewish religion with different, you know, you have Reformed, conservative and orthodox levels. And, um, you know, within Christianity, you have liberal, uh, liberal congregations and they have very fundamental congregations. They have a whole gamut. I, I don't know if that's true in the Mormon the, church, you know, so. The gamut I, idea I is still pretty it. new within the Mormon context. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the liberal people exist. That. So here's, so I'll give a, let me just try and 
let's bring this back to what might be helpful to people. I, I think that in the stereotypical Mormon scenario, uh, guys probably masturbate and look at porn frequently before they get married. So they have sort of that, yeah. I don't want to say habit, but they have that behavior that they bring to the marriage. And then whether or not they did that before, I think it's probably common for marriages, especially when babies come, for there to be peaks and valleys to the sexual exchanges that sometimes um, people's uh, libidos wane. And so let's just say it candidly, the man doesn't get it as much as he wants. And so sometimes he's faced it going weeks or even months where he's not having regular intimacy with his wife. Maybe she's nursing, maybe she's sore, maybe she's just not in the mood. And so, and so it would probably be common for a guy if he wants to achieve stimulation as part of that very healthy, natural clock that we talked about early in the show to want to occasionally masturbate to get the release if his spouse, you know, is not able to do that with him. And so he'll do that. And then maybe he'll need increasingly something to help stimulate him so that he can achieve that uh, release. And so we'll turn to softer porn and then eventually harder porn. And he's probably doing all this in secret because he doesn't want his wife to think he's evil and, and terrible. <clears throat> and Meanwhile, he's feeling evil and terrible himself. And, and that's right. feeding the shame cycle. And well, well, you know what, though? I would say, why, why is he unable to tell his wife that he has normal sexual needs and that the that two of them a natural man right well but you know the, the two of them need to sit down and again have a sit on the sofa conversation about the fact that now that there's been some kind of change in their life or some uh, stressor that's occurred how are they going to continue to have an intimate a satisfying intimate um relationship and 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 i would also challenge and say does it all have to be sex does it all have to be uh intercourse focus can does he maybe need to be cuddled or hugged or have his feet rubbed or neck rub um you know do they just need to be during times when they have other demands in their life do they just need to be more conscious of um, being nice to one another and giving each other other types of treats that, that maybe don't require the energy level of sex. So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, d- will guys go off and take care of themselves because they don't want to bother their wife? Yes. Um, is that okay sometimes? Uh, you know, well, you know, in my mind, yes. Um, but to me, the more important thing is having conversation. That, to me, is one of the problems, is that we are not taught how to speak as adults, adult to adult, have a sit-down chat about sex. You know, we're kind of raised that sex is something that you do, but you don't talk about it. It's too embarrassing which doesn't really make any sense. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous that, you know, it's like this very intimate thing that you do, but you're not allowed to talk about it, you know, right. <laughs> take it to, a, a, you know, talking about it is a, should be a lower level of tension than doing it. 
but yet we have so much shame, so much guilt, and we're not given an adult vocabulary for talking about our sexual needs, that that is what creates the problem. So, so talking about it is one important starting point for a couple yeah. that's, that's dealing with this issue. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I think that what you're talking about as well as, you know, our roles as therapists is that we can educate kind of like you're doing on this show as far as the drives. And one thing that I have found very helpful with couples is once we can elicit that type of conversation, they can usually come to different compromises such as, you know, well, yes, he's going to masturbate, but maybe in her presence or at least with her knowledge and kind of permission or, and, and again, we're, Right. I always feel bad that we're stereotypical because I know that there are women who have a higher sex drive than men. I know yes, that there are women right. who also look at pornography and sometimes the shame there can be even greater because we don't talk about women, you know, looking at pornography. Right. Yeah. So there's all those things. But I, I find that once the couple can have the education and their shared values and they can come to some compromises, that then a lot of this anxiety dissipates because they're both on the same page. Okay. Right. How about another possible solution? What if what if a good chunk of the women who aren't wanting to have sex as much, it's it's because the husbands aren't savvy about it, help how to help them achieve orgasm, and so women aren't seeking sex out as much because may, maybe there's some Mormons out there that that weren't taught how to help the woman achieve orgasm. Maybe they expected, maybe the man just expected that by hopping on and doing his thing, she would be completely satisfied by, by, by his behavior. Could it be that people's sex lives could increase and marital sex could increase when the husband learns to help his wife achieve orgasm? Uh, Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that women sometimes lose interest in sex is that they're unable to have orgasm. And it's kind of interesting to me that women don't always put those two things together. Um, you know, it's not a very rewarding uh, activity for them. They see their husband getting a lot of, of uh, sexual activity and for themselves, it's like, meh. <laughs> so, um yeah, there's a lot that the couple can explore together. And, you know, if couples were are more open to exploring each other's bodies and understanding each other's sexuality and being freer with one another, then, you know, maybe maybe there's not as much of a need for pornography. I think, you know, we have a lot of problems with, again, people being suppressed and again, it's not, you know, as Natasha just said, it's not just women who have their sexuality suppressed. Men do too. You know, they develop um, sometimes rather odd ideas about sex and uh, sex with a woman, um, you know, that's dirty or, um, you know, not something that you do with a, a nice woman. And, uh you know, so they get kind of turned around too. Um, you know, we just have we just have a lot of sexual problems in our let, culture. Let me, let me just ask this. It, I wonder if this would help 80% of the people out there who are having problems. It, should a man get rid of the expectation that mere penetration is going to lead to his wife's sexual arousal? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
most women uh, find that they don't have orgasm with penetration. Um, and I think it's seventy-five percent. Right. Yeah. Right. And 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 there was another study that showed that it's actually it's women that have been in a relationship for a long time are more likely to have um, a, a, a vaginal orgasm. Um, and the thinking is that you know, for women, there's a lot of trust involved uh, and, and familiarity with one's body and how one's body responds and what feels good. So, um, you know, it, I think a lot of men would feel a lot better and a lot uh, happier with themselves if they didn't feel that they had to bring their wife to orgasm with intercourse. And when they don't do that, they feel bad about themselves. They feel sexually inadequate. I think sometimes that leads to masturbation and looking at porn. It's like, well, I'm just going to avoid sex altogether because, you know, I can't please my wife and it makes me feel bad. Um, so I think, you know, for the couple to understand female anatomy and not just female anatomy, but, you know, the whole, the whole art of lovemaking because um you know you can you can have the mechanics down pretty good but if you you're using the mechanics to get the woman aroused that doesn't really work it's all the nuanced touching and caressing that leads to a woman to become aroused and when she is highly aroused then you want to try for orgasm so just knowing that can be very helpful to people and really understanding um, what, what lovemaking is all about, you know, and that it, it, you know, it is a wonderful experience when it goes well. It's a wonderful experience, um, but it becomes fraught with peril when it becomes either too goal-directed and, um, you know, there's a sense of failure for couples sometimes when a woman doesn't achieve orgasm. Um, men get their egos bent out of joint. Uh, women feel guilty and, and upset with themselves. Uh, that's not a good scenario for the couple at all. And then if the woman feels like she has to fake the orgasm so that the man doesn't feel rejected or sad, then that it can also drive her to want to stop because she has to always put on this fake act to right. make the man happy, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that becomes very perilous too, you know, because if she finally, at some point, you know, cannot keep up the charade and tells her husband that that is a very devastating thing. So you know, faking may seem like a good idea. Uh, at the beginning, but I think it just leads to just very bad feelings. Okay. Well, I know that, um, well, we're, I know we're almost out of time because I know everybody has to go on to different appointments, but one last thing I did want to bring up, just kind of coming back to the pornography issue at large, I, I think we'd be remiss not to mention something more on the larger scale or cultural context um, so I don't know if you could speak to Dr. Bueller, um, positive or negative effects as far as people who go into the industry and what we know about how the industry is run. So right. in other words, maybe it's fine that we look at pornography every now and then 
or maybe it doesn't affect our particular marriage, but are there some ethical concerns on a larger scale that we as a culture should be aware of and, you know, take into consideration as we partake of this industry? Right. Well, I think, you know, again, there are matters of degree. So I think if you talk about her, it sounds so weird, but mainstream pornography, you know, the kind that you, that your cable station might uh, put on an adult channel. Um, For the most part, what we hear is that those people want to participate. The the actors in the pornographic movies want to participate, that they are paid well, that um, they are checked for STDs and so forth. And I'm guessing that there is a a minority that is like that. And, you know, they're the most vocal. But for sure, you know, there are other pornography that uh, is not produced in such luxe uh, locations and, you know, is made, you know, with people that are exploited. Um, Sometimes... uh, for example, we know that sometimes women are hooked on drugs and in order to make money for drugs, they get into pornography. Uh, you know, women get coerced into making pornography. I'm sure men get coerced into making pornography too. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's not a healthy situation. Um, you know, of course, there are some people that feel that any objectification of human beings uh, in terms of their sexuality is, uh, is a big negative. And, um, you know, and then of course there are moral questions of having uh, sex with multiple partners um, without the benefit of marriage and so forth. So. Um, well, and I had heard, I had heard as well that um, the statistics are pretty high for even, you know, women or men who say, yes, I, you know, I'm totally participating and this is my artistic form of expression and I, I love being a porn star. Even amongst that population, um, when you really ask about their history, there's a high likelihood of sexual abuse in their past as a child or as an adolescent. Right. Well, that's true. Um, I don't know, you know, that's an interesting one. I always think, well, if that's true, to me, it kind of speaks to the fact that we don't have, like raises a whole other huge can of worms about uh, shame around sexual abuse, um, lack of uh, knowledge about what uh, psychotherapy or the mental health uh, system can do, um, uh, lack of access to mental health and all of that. You know, so there's so many problems on so many levels that the mind boggles, really. And, um, you know, that's, that's a very sad thing. I mean, we do know that some people who are sexually abused do become sexualized. Um, there seems to be some evidence, uh, that there are, changes in a young person's brain that have to do with cortisol levels, stress levels that change the um, uh, sexual hormones and sexual development of the person. 
and so they can come to uh, come to a place where they act out sexually, become promiscuous. So that's problematic. But I can't say that it's necessarily, you know, pornography that enters into the picture. Um, you know, that's just a sad fact uh, of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder for a, a minority of people um, that they become highly sexualized. Okay. Well, I, I'm pretty much done with my list of questions. John, are you needing to ask anything else or did we lose John? <laughs> let's just say that, let's just say if, if I were to summarize, sorry, my, my um, mute button was on. If I were to summarize, I guess, um, I think the most common scenario that people are going to listen to, there's either the adolescent teen that's, that's masturbating and looking at pornography. And it sounds like the advice to them is um, be moderate. Don't have shame and guilt use good judgment um but but maybe a little bit of masturbation or or even a little bit of pornography use if it's not getting to the extreme isn't something to to feel terrible and horrible about and may even prevent sexual exploration and and you know spread of venereal diseases and other types of things is that is that a first summer summation we could take from this yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, we have natural curiosity about our bodies and about sex. And, you know, satisfying that natural curiosity and just kind of staying at that level, I think is a healthy thing. Okay. And then for the scenario where in a marriage, there's one partner who's looking at porn and potentially masturbating, and and it's a problem for the other member in the couple – what I hear you saying is communicate, communicate, communicate. I yeah. hear you saying develop flexibility so that we don't bring extreme rigid rules and standards so that we can allow our partners to kind of um, to, to, to kind of do what they need to do to be healthy, but at the same time, there needs to be good communication where people can show mutual respect and um, not just disregard the care and concern of the other. So both need to give to come to a mutual understanding about sexuality and these types of things. Is that right? That's a really good summation. <laughs> and then I and, could not have said it better, John. Okay. And then the final thing I'm hearing you say is make sure that sex is pleasurable for both members in the couple, such that especially with the with the wife, that the wife help her achieve orgasm regularly, take away the expectation that simple penetration on the male's part is going to lead to the spouse's, the wife's pleasure. If the wife needs to explore herself, even through masturbation, so that she becomes familiar with what brings her pleasure, and then the husband learns to help the wife achieve orgasm, and likely that's going to be without penetration, through oral sex or through manual manipulation or whatever, that is going to maybe increase their mutual sex so that pornography and masturbation might become less of a prominent role in their marriage if it's something that they don't both feel good about. Would you add anything to that? Uh, no, I think you summed it up really well. I think um, the more that you communicate about sex, the more you enjoy it as a couple, the less need you will have to turn to masturbation 
And I think that's, that's really the point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to end. Well, thank you so much for, again, taking your time. We will um, definitely link to your book from our site and also to your uh, website, the Bueller Institute. So that, right. And I do, um, I, put out a, I put out a monthly, or try to be monthly, newsletter that, that people can get. So if they want to go onto the website and sign up, that would be, um, that would be cool. What's the book called, Dr. Bueller? The book is called Sex, Love, and Mental Illness, A Couple's Guide to Staying Connected. Oh, wow. What a great title. Yeah. And the, yeah, and it's the, a great, great book. And the website again? Is, uh, it's thebuellerinstitute.com. And Bueller is spelled? B-U-E-H-L-E-R. And if people want to actually visit one of your therapy offices again, what cities are you located? I am in uh, Newport Beach and Riverside, California. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This oh, you wonderful. are welcome. It's been very, very valuable information. Yeah, a very stimulating discussion, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and Natasha, yes, thank you. Natasha, tell us your website real quick. Uh, I'm at, um, well, my website is natashaparker.org now. But I'm also at uh, mormontherapist.blogspot.com, which is where my blog runs. Awesome. And Dr. Bueller, if we can ever help you in any way, I hope you'll let us know. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonstories.org. To keep the podcast alive or to join our support community, please consider a tax-deductible donation today at mormonstories.org. Music for this podcast was provided by Clayton and Sky Pixton. The Mormon Stories logo was generously provided by studiocase.com. Thank you for listening. Together we'll learn of his commandments that we may return home to his presence to live in his sight always, always to walk in the Will